what we take time off from for our normal work patterns and celebrate as holidays expresses our cultural values, or at least what our values were when the holiday was established. I love having Thanksgiving. It's a great holiday, uh, at least what it stood for when it was initiated, and to, to thank God for his saving work among the people who first immigrated here and to give thanks to him for, for what he's provided is great. Um, but today, uh, Thanksgiving is, is not so much about God. It's more about feasting, football, and pre-Black Friday frenzy. In today's Exodus passage, we will see that God calls his people to keep his worship central by celebrating his saving acts and his provision. God calls his people to keep his worship central by celebrating his saving acts and his provision. So we're going to read from Exodus 23, verses 10 and 19, and so if you would stand for that, reading of God's word. Exodus 23, verses 10 to 19. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may, may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of, of your labor, of what you sow in the field, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the, the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the, the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. Thank you. You may be seated. This was the fulfillment of God's purpose for the Exodus, that that people would feast and have festivals to the Lord. Not just that, but uh, what he had said to Pharaoh... God told Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go that they may hold a feast in my honor. So that they would, be a, they would be God's people, they would be a worshiping community, people whose lives are centered on and shaped by the worship of, of God, of the Lord God, Yahweh. And this is what he said in, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be, be to me a kingdom of, kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God made them to be a kingdom of priests, uh, a, a worshiping community, a holy nation. Soon after this, God begins giving Israel the law, so the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, literally. And, um, and then he begins giving them case, case law from the end of chapter 20 up to through this chapter 23, 
uh, just more working out the implications of the Ten Commandments. As God's already redeemed people. So, so Israel's already God's people. He's already redeemed them. They're not doing, uh, keeping his laws in, in order to um, become his people. He's made them his people. And what they're doing is they would display his holy and good character to the nations. But the Jews failed again and again to obey God's law. So another reason God gave Israel the law was to prepare them to trust in their coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, the only one who ever kept the law perfectly, the one who fulfilled the law in all its requirements in its form. So as it says, and Paul writes, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law acted as a guardian to keep them ever always looking toward Christ. So hopefully you absorbed all that somehow. <laughs> so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may, may be justified by faith. So how do we apply the law in our day if we do it all? Because these, these laws are very strange to us. They, what they require and, and the penalties are, are very... Um, they, we don't do these things anymore. So how do, we, what, how do we interpret these texts? How do we obey them? How do we understand them? So what the law is, is um, <clears throat> it reveals the character of God, the lawgiver. We don't study it in order to find out what we have to do under the new covenant. So now we live in, under the new covenant, but we, uh, we, we study it to know our God. We see that he's holy, he's perfectly just and a merciful God. God perfectly fulfilled the law for us in Christ, freed us from its condemnation and gifted us his righteousness and in doing that, he gave us his spirit who unites us to himself and gives us new hearts that want to do what the law requires. Love God and love, love one another. So what we do as God's new covenant people is we, with te- texts like these, is we look for ways they point to Jesus and for ways that they reveal to us the character of God and how we are to love him and love others. So that's what we do with these, with these strange laws that we don't, have any place for anymore. So looking at the verses 10 to 12, we see that God gave them some, some Sabbath laws. In um, The original command in the, in the Ten Commandments was, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How were they to keep it holy? By doing all their work in six days and resting on the seventh. That's how they were to keep it holy. Here we see it in the, that the fourth commandment is now expanded to apply not just to days but to years, so six years, um, grow your crops, and then on the seventh year, just, just don't do anything. Let it lie fallow so that the, the poor and, and beasts can eat from it. So in keeping with many of the laws in, in, in this section, God emphasizes here the ways a Sabbath command helps the poor and um, marginalized. And then in verse 12, he, he gives them the more straightforward the six days, uh, Sabbath command and as a day of rest for both man and beast is really a form of social justice the Sabbath was God's guarantee that workers and livestock would get a day off so what do we do with what God has said about the Sabbath well very practically it's good for us to have a day off to work six days and, and have one day off and there's, there's nothing in nature there's nothing in the the um, that makes six days and seven, a seven-day week, 
uh, fit anything. It's, it's simply because this is the way God, God worked, and, and that's filtered out to our, our whole world. It's amazing because there's nothing else that makes that make sense. Nothing in the stars or the moon that makes it seven-day week fit. It's just God's, God's plan for how he designed uh, work to work. So as human beings, we need to work into rest, and we should find ways to care for the needy in the ways we manage what God provides through our resources and means of, of providing for ourselves. So we shouldn't be workaholics. We shouldn't consume everything we work for on just ourselves. That's what he's saying here. So Christ fulfilled the Sabbath for us. So that Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, he says, Sabbaths and feast days are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So if, what, what does that mean? Christ fulfilled the Sabbath for us, and, and it was, it's a shadow of things to come. Well, it means that, it doesn't mean that we don't take a day off. We do. It doesn't mean we can't have feasts. We do that. But these things are no longer regulated by law. They're no longer um, built in by law. Uh, rest so Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from trying to keep the law in your own strength and failing. Um, rest from the burden of your sins. And as we anticipate our ultimate Sabbath rest from the labors and sins and sufferings of this world in the new heavens and new earth, um, in, in Hebrews it says that there's, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it says that um, we, sh- we need to strive to enter that rest by faith. And Revelation 14, 13 says, when we enter the new heavens and new earth, we rest from our labors of this present world. It doesn't mean we're going to be just kick, kicking, back, kicking, kicking back and being lazy there. It means we're going to be um, resting from the sufferings and sins of this world. So that's what it means Christ fulfilled the Sabbath for us. Then in verse 13 of Exodus 23, we have this, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods. This is based on the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Here he prohibits even mentioning the names of other gods. He alone is to be worshipped, obeyed, believed in, and honored. Calling on gods by name has, has, means you're worshiping them. So don't even mention their names in worship at all. To prohibit saying a God's name is to prohibit all worship of other gods. So this law calls Israel to an exclusive devotion to, to him as the one true God who is making his covenant relationship with him as, as his redeemed people. To call on the name of other gods is to doubt God's goodness and promise to provide for his people everything they need. It violates his covenant. And he says, make sure that you're covered by um, what, what you're doing in that. You're trying to make sure that you're covered. You're covering all your bases by having other gods. I need to include these other gods in case God doesn't come through for me. So he's, don't distrust God. He's going to provide for you. He's going to save you. He's going to provide all you need. To call on the name of other gods is to doubt God's goodness and provision. In... Um, Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, when they, they answered, whose name did you heal this man in? They said, in the name of Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, 
there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Philippians 2, I think we, we read some of that earlier. God highly exalted Christ because he, he obeyed, became obedient to the death on the cross. Highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has exclusive rights to our trust, devotion, obedience, worship, and loyalty. Do you ever wonder if you could steadfastly confess the name, the name of Jesus and not give in to threats to your lives if, if you don't confess another God? So like the, the Christians in Afghanistan, for example, how do they continue to confess Jesus under threats? Uh, so this is a very hard example I'm going to give you. This is, this is hard to talk about, but, but these are brothers and sisters in Christ. Rose is a woman who lives in Nigeria. She faced such a decision. The Islamist terrorist group Boko Haram, you may have heard of them, um, they follow ISIS, had attacked her family. They killed her husband and her two children before her eyes. As she ran away, they, they kept after her. They kept attacking her. They pushed her down on the ground. She fell to the ground, and they began further attacking her. They demanded she say, Allahu Akbar, which is Allah, the, the Muslim God is great. She, she refused. All she would say is Jesus. With every refusal, they kept demanding, say it, Allahu Akbar. She kept saying Jesus, Jesus, until she could no longer speak. So don't let the name of Jesus compete with other gods. Continue to confess Jesus no matter what. Remain loyal to Jesus. No one else compares. Jesus, Jesus is the only way, we, only way we can know God. He's the only hope we have. He is supreme over all things. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He has no true competition. Then in verses 14 through 19, we have laws about three festivals. Three festivals or feasts mentioned here are often called pilgrim feasts because Israelite families, says in verses 14 and 17, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. 17, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. That means all, all men who were heads of their families, bring, all your, bring your families to these three feasts throughout the year. In verse 15, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened bread, that's bread without yeast. Unleavened bread marked the beginning of the barley harvest. The story behind this feast we read about earlier uh, in, in Exodus. The feast of unleavened bread began the day of, after the Passover. The Passover celebrated and memorialized the Lord's provision of the blood of the Passover lamb that would ensure no Israelite would be killed when God came to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. So once God did that, he, he told Pharaoh, let, let my people go or I'm going to kill all your firstborn, and he did that. Then Pharaoh said to Moses and Aaron, hey, get out of here, take your people and go. So we read that um, because they're in such a hurry, they took their unleavened dough and because they didn't have time to, to let it rise with the yeast, 
So Unleavened Bread was a liberation celebration. It was, it was a time to remember God's mighty saving work in history. The Feast of Unleavened Bread com- commemorated how God saved Israel out of the slavery in Egypt. You can clearly see how Jesus f- fulfills the Feast of Unleavened Bread. How did Jesus fulfill the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on top of a mountain to pray, he was transfigured, appearing in glory before them. So in Luke 9, 30 to 31, may have that up there. Two men were talking with Moses, with him, Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Literally in, in the, the Greek, the original language there, the, the word is exodus. It's just like it is in English almost. Um, so they were speaking of Jesus' exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what was the exodus that Jesus was going to accomplish? Jesus was crucified and died on Passover as the Passover lamb. In his death, he bore the sins of all God's people so that whoever believes in him is delivered from sin, slavery, and punishment. They are freed to be God's people who will now enjoy the freedom and joy of serving and worshiping the Lord Jesus. Jesus took the bread and the cup of the Passover meal, like here, and gave it to them, his followers, as a new covenant meal, the Lord's Supper. He said that we do this in remembrance of him. And Paul said that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is what he gave to us to um, continue on remembering his saving work that he fulfilled, his exodus that he fulfilled for us. The Feast of Unleavened Bread also pictures for us how we are to leave behind sin when Jesus saves us. We follow him out of Egypt. We leave our sins, our leaven behind. Um, our old, out of our old slavery to sin, we leave behind the, the, the leaven of sin. So the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 to 8, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may become a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Next feast is the Feast of the Harvest. It's also known as the Feast of First Fruits. When the grain was ready for, for harvest, the Israelites would take the first sheaf of wheat and wave it before the Lord as a way of acknowledging the whole harvest came from him. This was done on the day after the, after the Sabbath, after the Passover, but it was only the beginning. They would count off seven full weeks after that time. So seven weeks, which explains why the celebration had yet another name, the Feast of Weeks. So it was harvest, feast of harvest, feast of weeks. They counted off 50 days up to the day after the, the seventh Sabbath. And this worked out the 50 days after the Passover, on the 50th day, the people would bring an offering to their God. This is why it later became known as Pentecost, because penta is the word for 50. So 50 days after the Passover was Pentecost. And just as God fulfilled Passover and unleavened bread in Jesus, so he did with the Feast of Harvest, or Pentecost. The New Testament describes Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If you've died in Jesus, Jesus was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in that he was resurrected. We see this in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 
22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Another way that this feast was fulfilled in the New Testament was on the day of Pentecost, where after Jesus ascended, 50 days after the Passover, Pentecost, Jerusalem was filled with, crammed with people from all over the Roman Empire, Jews, who came to celebrate the Feast of Harvest. As usual, they were all there. Jesus fulfilled the promise he had made and poured out his spirit on the church. With the great rush of wind and fire, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages. So the people from all over the Roman Empire heard the gospel in, in their own language. And the initial, the initial harvest count was 3,000 people were saved in that day. The feast finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. We discover that the Feast of Harvest was picturing or foreshadowing God's great harvest to come. Jesus often described the saving work in terms of harvest. He, he talked a lot about the harvest. He described the world as a field, people as wheat, the enemies as weeds, and the final judgment as the great harvest when the wheat would be harvested and the weeds would be burned forever. He said, after talking to a, a, a woman of Samaria, the woman at the well, in John chapter 4, he said, the disciples said, hey, why are you talking to her? Why are you talking to this woman? We've we got to get food, so let's go get something to eat. And he said, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is recorded as saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. The great spiritual harvest began at Pentecost, the Feast of Harvest. What God sowed in Jesus Christ, he started to reap from the nations. He's been doing that ever since. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he has been gathering people from every tribe and tongue. So the way we carry out God's purpose for the, nation, for the fulfillment of the Feast of Harvest is we pray for the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest among the nations. And we will labor to spread the seed of, of the gospel to help the seed grow. Some plant, some water, God gives the growth. Final feast, Feast of Ingathering. Verse 16. The Feast of Ingathering <clears throat> celebrated the completion of the harvest year and the gathering in of all the fruits, all the, all the crops. Its connection with the wilderness wanderings commemorated the Lord's call and provision for his people during their wanderings in the wilderness. When Israel lived in booths or tents, uh, it was also called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents, Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacle is an old English word for tent. So whenever you hear that word, that's not like a, just a weird, weird religious word. It just means tent. Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of ingathering, tabernacles, booths, whatever you want, lasted a full week during which time the Israelites lived in makeshift booths or tents made of leaves and branches. I think you could go get a, uh, your own kit available at Home Depot. God said to Moses, all native-born Israelites are to live in booths, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths or tents when I brought them out of Egypt. 
like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Ingathering, look back to God's saving work in history. The people camped out to remember the story of, of their salvation. After their escape from Egypt, the Israelites went out into the wilderness where they lived in tents. By living in booths or tents for a week-long festival, they would reenact part of the Exodus every year. They became pilgrims all over again. This would strengthen their assurance that the God who saved his people through the wilderness, um, even though they, they disobeyed and, and had to do it for 40 years, it was supposed to be just like a few days, because they disobeyed, they, they were out there 40 years in tents in the wilderness. So it became a very, very long time of living in tents. Um, but even that, even with that, that's a good testimony that God was faithful to them. He kept them, and, and he was with them until he, they, they entered the promised land. So God fulfilled that for them. And he said in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, this was his promise. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to, my, to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall, shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give, you, I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And then... The ultimate fulfillment of that in Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, or older translations of the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God is now among men, is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Until the day when we who are God's new covenant people enter the promised land of the new heaven and earth, Jesus will lead us, provide for us, protect us as we walk through the wilderness of this world, as we walk through the wilderness of this world. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, that's the opening line to Pilgrim's Progress. As I walk through the wilderness of this world. I wonder if you would let me prophesy. And if you need to go get stones, get them. But Jesus fulfilled the Passover, on Passover, he fulfilled Pentecost on Pentecost. I think he's going to come back on this feast. Don't say what year. So you can't, you should not stone me for not giving you a year. If I give you a year and give you a date, stone away. But it makes sense that Jesus would come back in this feast because that's what he's done in all the other ones. So that'd be like end of September or October. So save the date or be saved before the date, <laughs> before you expire. All right, done prophesying. The Feast of Ingathering was such a grand celebration that by the time of Christ, it was simply known as the Feast, called the Feast. Ingathering reaches climax on the eighth and final day. On that day, in addition to all the other closing ceremonies, a grand procession drew water from the Pool of Siloam and poured it out at the temple. This pouring out of water was the context for what we read that Jesus did in John's gospel in John chapter 7 verse 37 39 on the, the last day of the feast the great day Jesus stood up and cried 
out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. We no longer celebrate the pilgrim feast of Exodus. There is still a place for feasting, of course, and for celebrating salvation in Jesus. That's great. We, we do that. But um, as Christians, we are not required to go up to Jerusalem, so you don't have to do that. You don't have to go to Jerusalem three times a year, although it would be fun, I'm sure. The, 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 the three big feasts were all part of the Old Covenant law, and they, they all found their fulfillment in the saving work of Jesus Christ. The one feast that Jesus has ordained for the church is, is the Lord's Supper. So we're going to have that shortly. He gave us the bread to symbolize his body, the cup to symbolize his blood, the unleavened bread, the blood of the Passover lamb. And that's the one thing he required of us. And he said, do, he said do, do that a lot. Don't just do that three times a year or one time a year. Do it a lot. And that's even more important than Christmas. You're not required to celebrate Christmas. You may be looking for stones again, but... Everybody, let's not get, let's, I don't want to get, I, I just don't want to get stoned. I want to stay sober. But what do you want to, what do you value more, the Lord's Supper or Christmas? It's the one requirement that Jesus gave us. Celebrate this feast this way. We have these strange um, two verses in 18 and 19. Seem kind of like an odd way to end this. Shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain till the morning. So he's referring back to the to the unleavened bread and Passover. You're supposed to have a leaven-free house, and none of the Passover blood should be contaminated with leaven. Okay, so don't do that. Then he says. The best of the first fruits you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So don't fail to bring your best to me. And I wonder how often do we give God less than our best of our, of our time, our affections, our resources, our, our energy or service. Why does it feel like God asks us something? We feel like, oh, I, I, we, we complain about that. Israel, again, over and over throughout their history, God, God, uh, God after them for not giving them his best, their best. So God should get the best of our time, top of the day, whenever that is for us, our best of our affections, the best of our resources, energy, and service. And then I don't know how many of you have been this week struggling with not boiling a baby goat in his mother's milk. You can be honest. How many of you have been tempted to that? We're going to start a support group. <laughs> Do not cook a young goat in his mother's milk. What's that about? Well, they're not sure, but they th- it seems that there was a pagan idea that um, what made the goats, baby goats grow was their mother's milk. So if you, um, if you boiled it in his mother's milk, it could cause the whole, your whole flock of goats to, to grow big and strong. So that's, that's nonsense, and if Israel believed it, they, they could 
they can conclude that the power to shape their destiny and to live the abundant, to have an abundance would be kind of magic and superstitious. So God's saying, even if all the other peoples around you do this, don't boil a kid in his mother's milk. So if you've been doing it, stop it. No more from this day forward, no more boiling baby goats in mother's milk. So we aren't to corrupt the worship of, of Jesus with, with the world's myths, values, and pagan spirituality. The church has often done this throughout history, adopting the, the culture's pagan practices and beliefs and mixing them with the worship of Jesus. We, we're not trying to find ways to, to uh, make the world's myths compatible with the gospel and Christian truth such as God just wants me to be happy. Now, we can be happy in God, but, but that's... He, he doesn't, he, what we typically mean, mean by that, happy at all costs, happiness on my terms, or to find my authentic self, a God made me this way, even if it contradicts his word. We say God made me this way as an excuse to be whatever we want to be. Um... What I feel is right for me must be right or, or true for me. All religions lead to God. So we're not to take in the world's wisdom and mix that in with Christian truth to make it more acceptable to people. God claimed exclusive rights to Israel's worship. They were to keep his worship pure according to his word not to be conformed to the corrupt ways of the peoples around him. Their worship and their obedience belong to him alone and not to any other God. The same is true for every one of us. We are called to offer ourselves to God and God alone as a way of life, not just a feast day or sacrifice, one-day thing. We see this in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That means the gospel. How has God had mercy on us? to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your, of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, acceptable, and perfect. By the mercies of God, what did he do to save you through the exodus that Jesus accomplished for you? His perfect life, his death on the cross, as our Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world, his victorious resurrection, his sending the Holy Spirit to empower his church to live as his people who display the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God and to be his witnesses to bring in the harvest. We, we all struggle to live out God's will, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So Jesus said, keep coming to this table. Keep coming again and again and again. You need the gospel. You need to, you need, you need to have it daily. Don't go a day without the gospel. It's not safe. And remember when you take this, his bread and, and his body, his body and the bread and his blood in the cup, representative of his death and, and his incarnation, uh, you're proclaiming his death until he comes. So his death, because of Christ's death, is the only way that we can have life. So, so let's celebrate the feast together. We'll be doing that. You, you have time to do that as we're going to worship in song. There are going to be people up here to pray with you if you need to pray. Um, both now and later on as well. So uh, I'll pray and we'll prepare our hearts.
Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us Jesus, who is the word that you revealed to us. He is our, he's better than Moses. He's, he's the true Israel. He redeemed us by his death and his resurrection. We thank you, Father, for making us to be a people who, in him, can begin to offer our lives to you as a living, holy, pleasing sacrifice. Grant us that, Father. Grant us the strength for that. Forgive us and cleanse us of all of our sins. We can't work those off. We can only... Jesus, Jesus died to remove from us all the stain, all the guilt, all the power of sin. He's freed us. He's liberated us. We're his people. As we've entered, we long to enter that rest, ultimate dwelling with you forever in the new heavens and new earth. But until that time, Father... May we be an encouragement to one another to continue to, to dwell together in trust and obedience to you. Thank you so much for the gift of Christ. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Father. In his name, amen.